This podcast was recorded at 9 a.m. 31 May Jakarta time. Things may have changed by the time you hear this. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to Reformasi Dispatch. I'm Jeff Hutton, regional correspondent for the Straits Times of Singapore. And I'm Kevin O'Rourke, producer and writer of the Reformasi Weekly Service on Indonesian politics and policymaking. Kevin, I got my first vaccination shot. Yeah. I'm so happy. Well done. Yeah. Slight headache, kind of tired, took a Panadol, took a nap, and I was fine. Did you, uh, you you've got a, a jab already. Yep. They were, what, my takeaway from it, I got the AstraZeneca, and my takeaway on it was uh, there was a lot of enthusiasm there, and we showed up just as the doors were opening, and I was already 100, and my ticket number was 199, and they were still going well after I left. It's, uh, it's, uh, they're rolling it out in droves. Yeah, it's good to see that there's the ability to, to conduct this en masse in Indonesia, that the capability is there. It's just a matter of supply. Okay, on today's pod, KPK KO's 51 staff, Sri Mulyani nixes the second tax amnesty, COVID-19 infections show a slight uptick, and the Indonesian government eyes a huge boost to renewable energy. And later in the pod, I catch up with none other than Novel Baswedan, the uh, star investigator at the KPK, who, as far as anyone else can, anyone can tell, is still an investigator with the KPK. He... Uh, he, he called the national perspectives exam, the TWK, that he had to take uh, a trick to try to push him out. And uh, he is currently on leave and may very well be facing the sack on uh, November 1st. It was a great interview. Yeah, fantastic. So, uh, yeah, we've got uh, insights direct from one of the key figures in this uh, saga. Yep. Okay, well, let's uh, let's start off with that. That's our that's our top story. Last week, uh, Police General Furley Bahuri said that 51 staff who had failed the National Perspectives Exam, which uh, the, the acronym for that is TWK, will be dismissed from the Corruption Eradication Commission by November 1st. So far, 75 have been suspended. The remaining 24 will need to sit down for retraining. There's no firm details yet, but it seems uh, pretty clear that um, uh, this is just a hatchet job on Novel Baswedan, intent on pushing him out. He, uh, he, he was pretty punchy in the interview. Uh, he, he, uh, he called the tactic a trick and uh, that the police are more or less, they are putting obstacles down to... Uh, they're, they're ring-fencing investigations. One arrest would um, lead to other arrests, and that's not happening anymore. The big-profile arrests sit with one person. They don't uh, go f- too much further from there. What, what's, um, can you give us an update on the KPK, where it stands now, and um, sort of a little bit of discussion about um, the, the prognosis for novel? Yeah, this is very much a uh, Greek tragedy. You could also say a slow motion train wreck. Since the KPK was formed in 2003, there have always been enormous tensions with the uh, establishment uh, in politics. And uh, early on, the police uh, ended up being the uh, defenders of some of the vested interests targeted by the KPK. And ironically, Nova Basweden had formerly been with the police, but he was among these people seconded to the KPK and he, he became their star investigator because of his abilities. Although they have a lot of other very professional investigators as well. 
and tensions uh, between these types of investigators, including him and the police, broke out in uh, 2015, uh, for example, when um, Sweden almost uh, entered custody as a, almost went under arrest uh, with the police. And then in 2017, of course, he suffered that attack that left him almost near, uh, blind uh, with, with one eye burned by acid. Uh, and that was uh, perpetrated by two police personnel, as we've, we discussed two weeks ago in the podcast. And uh, so fast forward to, uh, well, 2019, then the president basically weakened uh, the KPK severely through the revision of the KPK law. A main, one feature was the appointment of Bahuri, an active police general, as KPK chair. The other feature was a requirement for all 1,300 or so KPK personnel to become civil servants. And that would really severely compromise their uh, independence and, and make them very uh, uh, subject to um, uh, influence and, and manipulation by the, the powers that be. And um, then despite Bahuri heading the commission, there were still a, a series of uh, pretty high profile arrests. Uh, two ministers late last year, uh, fisheries and the social affairs ministers, both uh, representatives of the two largest parties in parliament. Also, they uh, they caught a uh, tycoon, Samin Tan, a coal magnate who was a fugitive for more than a year. Uh, and uh, they also exposed a, a tax bribery case that involves Haji Isam or Andy Arshad, who's a major coal magnate in South Kalimantan uh, with all sorts of nefarious interests and political connections. So right after the spate of those arrests, uh, suddenly Bahuri accelerated this process to convert KPK personnel to civil servants, including through this uh, TWK test, which ended up failing 75 people based on very controversial assessment criteria. And as we pointed out in the podcast two weeks ago, Bahuri stated emphatically that any media saying that the Tewe Ka test intends to result in the sackings of KPK personnel is a hoax. So the media are perpetrating hoaxes by saying that. Ten days later, he announced that 51 failed TWK test takers would be sacked. <laughs> exactly how the media had reported it when he said that they were perpetrating a hoax. And uh, it's unclear who exactly uh, are among these 51, but presumably it includes uh, Novel Basuedan and, and a bunch of others. Uh, Giri Supraptiono, uh, Damanik is, is another investigator. There's a, there's a bunch of others. So and then the other issue happening right now is uh, among the personnel who passed the TWK test, there are, as of latest count, already 588 who have signed on to a petition saying that they want to postpone their induction as civil servants until the status of these uh, 75, including the 51, becomes clear. So there's real resistance among the uh, rank and file KPK personnel towards what uh, Bahuri is basically doing to this uh, group of 75. What does this whole saga say about Joko Widodo's commitment or otherwise to clean governance? Okay, so yeah, that was a, a big wrinkle in this saga was uh, on uh, May 17th, uh, Widodo issued a video statement calling on Bahuri and the KPK leadership to uh, refrain from sacking anybody and to keep the uh, 75 personnel active rather than deactivated and to just provide them guidance where necessary. But we don't couch that in the form of a recommendation because indeed the KPK is independent. In any event, uh, you know, Bahuri disregarded uh, that recommendation entirely. Uh, so it was uh, sort of a, a sign of effrontery uh, towards the president. Uh, but uh, that happened, yeah, about uh, five days or so 
or a week or so after Widodo's uh, message, and Widodo has not responded after that. So that video message by the president is what stands out as irregular. Uh, otherwise, besides that one video message that he issued, the president has been very passive about allowing the KPK's power to uh, wane. Why do you think that is? Well, the, the, there's different uh, forces within the president's inner circle. So on the one hand, you've got the uh, presidential chief of staff, Muldoko, also the coordinating minister, Luhut Panjayatan. On the other hand, you've got the uh, state secretary, Pratikno. And Pratikno is the one who tends to uh, exert pressure for reformist stances. And, and maybe, I'm speculating, he was the one that prompted that video message on May 17th. And then other advisors close to the president then regained the upper hand and made sure that Bahuri had uh, a clear path to proceed with uh, these sackings because indeed Bahuri uh, and uh, Alex Marwata, another member of the KPK, announced the sackings on 24 May after a meeting with two other state agencies related to civil service issues and two cabinet members uh, connected to civil service issues, the uh, minister for the state apparatus uh, and um, uh, the law minister, and both of them are from PDIP, you know, the party to which Widodo belongs. So you know, these are two figures who are both uh, cabinet subordinates of the president and his party colleagues, and they both agreed in this meeting to the sacking of the uh, 51 uh, failed KPK personnel. So it suggests that um, you know, the, the president is indeed um, acquiescing to the uh, neutralizing of the KPK and that one video message that he issued on 17 May was the aberration. You know, or a little bit of a fig leaf to provide some political cover. You know, the listeners of this pod uh, would probably hold the KPK in, in high esteem um, and would note the, the many, many high-level arrests. And it's th- thanks to people like Novel Buzzweedon, um, but also it's, its immense power. And now that that power is being, is being curtailed, or its ability to investigate graft is being curtailed. What of the prospects for governance in Indonesia? What should investors and outsiders be thinking about now about how clean the government can be? Now, this is a big problem, and, and it's not recognized how big a problem this is, because uh, so often uh, people in business circle and investors, they think that governance issues are a different arena, and that's all in politics, and it's not related to the economy and business. But in Indonesia, everything is connected. <laughs> I mean, the uh, people making the policies are the ones conducting the business very often. So uh, it's really important to have an anti-corruption commission to exert some type of check uh, or control or, or address the waywardness, uh, at least in some cases. Uh, Otherwise, things can really deteriorate badly. Uh, The governance conditions can really grow extreme. I think I always think about uh, Setia Navanto. So he was the uh, gold card chair who was parliament speaker and had uh, immense political power. And he would still be uh, influential today were it not for the KPK that managed to uh, imprison him. And and he was just uh, extraordinarily venal. The whole electronic credit, uh, electronic identity card uh, project went off the rails uh, specifically because of him. Uh, so the the thing is now is is the KPK going to become an instrument of abuse? Um, yes, um, we were talking about that. This this entire chapter is focused on the people using the power of the KPK, not about the power itself. The KPK has immense power of investigation and uh, and trials through a separate court system. 
would, mm-hmm. under the wrong leadership, be a sort of secret police. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And there have been societies in the past. You look through history in different countries around the world at times. Uh, they, they set up special uh, entities to set things straight when, when conditions were bad in, in politics. And over time, they evolved into uh, you know, instruments of uh, abuse and excess themselves. And that's always been a tension uh, within the KPK because the, the KPK's authorities and powers really are excessive. They, they violate the principle of separating out functions to have some checks and balances. Uh, there's a reason why you're supposed to have the police do the investigation, hand it off to the attorney general who does the prosecution, and then it goes to a court system. And those three things are separate because they had not functioned under Suharto and, and according to the rule of law. Uh, there was the invention of the KPK, which unifies investigations and prosecutions, and its cases go to its own special court where a majority of the judges are ad hoc judges recruited from outside the regular career judiciary. So it's kind of a closed shop. And that's why it's crucial that people of integrity be in charge of the commission. And uh, when that changes, then conceivably, this could be uh, an instrument for uh, persecuting whomever those in charge dislike. Hey, everybody. This is Kevin O'Rourke here. Uh, I want to tell you about the Reformasi Weekly Service on Indonesian politics and policymaking. If you haven't uh, checked it out, go ahead and sign up for a free trial. There's a button to do so on reformasi.info, my website. You may very well like it. If you like the podcast, uh, you're probably going to like the report. Uh, The only difference is that you'll have to actually actively read it instead of just listening to it. Uh, We've got all sorts of subscribers, uh, major embassies, donors, banks, uh, resource companies, uh, NGOs, journalists, universities and uh, individuals who are like uh, retirees or students, uh, yeah, uh, entrepreneurs. So uh, reach out, get in touch, and uh, there are discounts that are available depending on your category. And it's a, it's a unique resource, I can say that. Uh, there are some copycat uh, products out there now, but uh, I would recommend that you go with the original. Okay. Last week, Finance Minister Sri Mulyani Indrawadi put the kibosh on talk of a second tax amnesty. In fact, uh, the government will flex its access to automatic exchange of information uh, between international tax authorities and, and is, in fact, mulling a tax hike. That's a little bit of a whiplash there from, uh, from amnesty to tax hike. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So what happened here is that uh, you know, Hartarto, uh, Alanga Hartarto, who's the chair of Golkar and the coordinating minister for the economy, uh, two weeks ago had come out with a statement, as we discussed in last week's podcast, saying that there's going to be a second tax amnesty and a carbon tax and a higher value added tax and a goods and services tax, all part of a uh, general tax law revision that we're going to do later this year. That's what he said. So he was trying to do the right thing. I think it it just came out um, awkwardly. And so his mention of, uh, quote unquote, second tax amnesty uh, was misleading. And uh, the finance minister, thankfully, straightened out the record. Offered some clarification. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, it's... um, 
there's two different things. There was the uh, 2016 17 tax amnesty, whereby taxpayers were allowed to disclose their assets, often kept abroad, and uh, uh, make them legit by simply paying a redemption fee equivalent to about 2% of their value. And that was supposed to be a once in a lifetime thing. Uh, a second thing is the uh, 2016 tax amnesty law, which is a you know, piece of legislation, and that has a lot of stuff in it, one of which is the automatic exchange of information, the AEOI. And that's a framework, uh, con- uh, it's a convention used internationally for trading information about taxpayers between countries. And it came into effect in 2018 with Indonesia as a uh, participant. But the authorities don't seem to have been using it yet. So the idea here is that uh, an, an Indonesian taxpayer who has wealth abroad or has some assets abroad and is not disclosing them, well, the Indonesian authorities can ask the authorities of that other country, whatever it is, uh, to give them some information and uh, find out and then assess tax appropriately. So in other words, it it eliminates tax havens. Ironically, the United States is not a participant, so the U.S. is still a tax haven. But so in other words, it it eliminates tax havens. Uh, Anyway, uh, what Trimaliani said is that the the plan is to uh, use the 2016 tax amnesty law to apply the AEOI on participants from the past first tax amnesty to follow up with them to to make sure these people are now uh, keeping up with their obligations uh, using this automatic exchange of information. So they're hiking the tax on incomes over 15, sorry, 5 billion. Yeah. So 5 billion rupiah or higher. So yeah, about in terms of US dollars, about $300,000 a year in um, income, then the tax rate goes from 30% up to 35%. That's one of the provisions of this law. Uh, another provision is uh, there is going to be uh, a, this is part of the confusion with the tax amnesty, there's going to be a voluntary asset disclosure program that will allow uh, recalcitrant taxpayers to disclose their undisclosed assets. And uh, unlike the amnesty where it was practically free to do so, in this case, they would have to pay tax on that. But this voluntary program would waive the late fees on that. So that's a, that's a feature. And then there's a, a potential for a GST, a goods and services tax, alongside the uh, existing value-added tax. So there's a lot of major changes that could be happening. What's the tax take the government of the GDP is just north of 10% or so? Yeah, just, just above uh, 10%. Yeah, that's the uh, tax ratio or maybe 11%. Uh, kind of depends what GDP is doing. And GDP uh, fell a lot uh, last year, but uh, I was uh, ended up being about zero for the full year, of course. But um, yeah, the, the tax ratio is terribly low and it's very hard to develop a, uh, a middle-income country with such a low tax ratio. Well, yeah, to pay for services or um, infrastructure and the like. Um, they could... Cigarettes, but no one, no one listens to me. <laughs> okay, over to COVID infections. We are seeing some evidence of a slight uptick, more beds being doled out to COVID patients, and the uh, a recentering of of the pandemic away from Java and towards Sumatra. Yeah, yeah, there's uh, there's more what they call red zones or uh, areas with high transmission in Sumatra now than there are in Java, where the situation was uh, the exact opposite five months ago. So that's interesting. Um, everybody's watching the the pace of infections after the Eid al-Fitri holiday on uh, 14 May, and uh, past holidays have shown that spikes occurred about 20 days uh, after a holiday. That happened in Eid al-Fitri 2020, as well as Independence Day and the uh, Hari Raya Nabi Muhammad in, in October 2020, and also New Year's, last New Year's. 
Uh, so four times in a row that happened uh, right around the 18 to 20 day mark after the holiday. Uh, so that will be uh, you know, coming up uh, during the first week of June. And what's interesting is so far, uh, there's been a slight uptick nationwide, but uh, cases prior to the holiday were uh, right around 5,000 a day. And um, they're still a tad below 6,000 a day nationwide. And even more interesting in Jakarta now for a full week, they've been on a plateau uh, at around just under 800 per day in detections of new cases. So that's not bad. I mean, that's it's better than what I might have uh, uh, feared, um, yeah, but it could always change. Well, yeah, that's right. Always a good idea to retain some vigilance. But compared with outbreaks, in the region, I'm thinking of Vietnam, and of course, there's, there's India. Um, it's um, the pattern has been one of fairly stable rates of infection in a in, in a rather narrow band. That's right. Yeah, there was the uh, the spike in December and January, and the healthcare capacity is so limited that that was really uh, uncomfortable. Even though you know, by international standards on a per capita basis, that spike in January was not that severe. And so right now, cases um, you know, are within a manageable level, I guess. Uh, but Malaysia is really severe. So right now, uh, Malaysia has been setting records uh, for each of the past five days. And now they're at 9,000 uh, cases uh uh, yesterday, uh, detected in one day. And that is almost equivalent to the peak that Indonesia recorded uh, in early January. But uh, Malaysia is, uh, I think, about one-tenth the size of Indonesia. Uh, so uh, that's a severe outbreak they have right next door. And of course, there's a land border in Kalimantan with Indonesia. And there's a lot of Indonesian workers who have been in Malaysia. So um, that's close to home. It is close to home. Yeah, that is, um, it, and that's a fairly porous border too. Um, there's dozens and dozens of little uh, jalantikus that goes to, go across the border there, but it's all thankfully uh, fairly sparsely populated. So we, uh, when this pod lands on Wednesday, that'll be pretty close to the twenty day mark. So um, fingers crossed. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, the vaccinations are rolling out of pace. The China delivered another shipment of the CoronaVac uh, uh, last week. And so, but uh, still, it's uh, just about 6% of the uh, target population has received a second dose so far. Uh, it's just a little over 10 million people. So it's really not much. Yeah, they're they're going to have to race to catch up. On the bright side, though, everyone wants to line up for a vaccine. I can... Um... I can attest to that. Last but not least, uh, PLN's Director General for Power, um, Rita Mugliani. Is that right? Uh, uh, Rita Mugliana. Mugliana. Let's start that again. Last week, PLN's Director General for Power, Rita Mugliana, said that half of new power generation will come from renewable sources by the end of the decade. Is that is that right? Yeah. Well, then of the a new new capacity will be renewable. Yeah, that's what he said. That's uh, that's the plan. Of course, uh, actual development has never matched any plan ever, uh, but that's the plan. <laughs> the plans are chronically, uh, yeah, uh, unrealistic. But um, yeah, the, he's uh, there, there's 63 gigawatts of installed capacity and in the draft 10-year plan that's under discussion calls for another 41 gigawatts, uh, of which uh, 48% would be from renewables. 
and a moratorium, therefore, on coal-fired power plants. Yes, a moratorium, finally, but uh, not until 2026. So projects uh, that are in the pipeline now can uh, continue, uh, but uh, in 2026, there'll be no more development. You sent me a note. You um, you wanted to talk about uh, carbon sequestration. There's some projects coming coming up. Yeah, um, there's uh, more and more talk of this now. Uh, back in uh, November, there was an interesting appointment of uh, the key figure in the energy ministry for oil and gas. That's the director general for oil and gas. And uh, typically that's been a career ministry civil servant. But in this case, they drafted a carbon sequestration expert from the premier engineering university, Itebe. So that's um, uh, Tutuka Ariagi. And He's planning to come out with a regulation that will um, you know, pave the way for more use of carbon sequestration in the oil and gas sector, which uh, could be quite helpful. It still needs to be economic uh, somehow. It's uh, still a long way to go, unfortunately. But um, uh, BP is uh, actively discussing using uh, enhanced gas recovery to uh, um, you know, for its uh, you know, to, to sequester carbon in its Tangu project as it develops a third train in West Papua, and um, there's a, there's three small scale Pertamina projects using uh, carbon uh, capture uh, in various ways. So yeah, there there are some prospects there. Of course, you know this is always. Uh, yeah, kind of controversial because if typically in oil and gas, the carbon sequestration is being used for enhanced oil recovery. So, um, okay, you're you're taking out the carbon and putting it back in the ground, but you're just using it to produce more oil, which gets burned and releases carbon. So that's kind of more hydrocarbons. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't seem terribly effective. Um, but podcast listeners should note that uh, PLN and other government agencies are uh, have an appetite for renewable technology. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And there's supposed to be a regulation coming out on uh, pricing for renewables. And that'll be very interesting. And that might uh, pave the way for a breakthrough uh, on uh, more hydro and wind and uh, biomass projects. Is that overdue? The uh, regulation is uh, all right. It's still pending. Yeah. And yeah, who knows what kind of politics are going on behind the scenes there. When you look at the, the sheer scale of the uh, coal interests uh, represented in political parties in the cabinet, um, yeah, there's ample reason to worry that the regulations on renewables may never see the light of day. Didn't you say that Luhut has coal mines? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Toba Sajatra is uh, his conglomerate. They're small, but it's focused on coal. <laughs> well, we, of course, are at, uh, at the Reformasi Dispatch, fueled entirely by renewable energy. So, um... <laughs> All right. Coming up, my interview with Nabil Bezwiden. to start with your health hmm. how are you and where are you in the progress hmm. of your recovery yeah. uh, mata kiri saya sejak tahun lalu yang kiri sudah buta permanen saya tak bisa lihat sama sekali yang kiri yang kanan my left eye has been permanently blind since last year i can't see at all with the left one the right one has seen improvements now it's better 
Now I can see you, Jeff. You can see me. Yeah. Can you read documents? Are you able to read documents? For reading documents, I need special tools such as magnifying glass. And also, I have an app on my phone to help me read documents. And when you were speaking with me last time, you mentioned that there were plans to go for further treatment in Singapore, but we were in the middle of the pandemic. Where are you in that? Will you go back to Singapore? Yeah. Yes, since the pandemic, I can't go to Singapore because they're under lockdown. I went to doctors and herbal medications in Indonesia, and I think it is time to improve my health. Before COVID, my eyesight was really bad, but right now I can see improvements. Right now, my eye is functioning at 60%, while last year it was probably at 30%. The left one is still at 0%. And it's still no percent for the theory. But the main thing, you can still do your job. You feel you can still do your job. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you hear that. What is your status now in the KPK? Are you working here still? No, sekarang saya dibuat untuk no, right now I was forced to hand out my responsibility to my superiors. So now I just go to the office, but there isn't any work to do. I understand that there are 51 who will be dismissed and 24 that will remain. Which group are you? Yeah, memang sekarang diumumkan oleh pimpinan KPK bahwa ada lagi kelompok 51 dan 24 yang menurut saya saya nggak tertarik untuk melihat Yes, the leaders of KPK announced that there are two groups, those in the 51 and those in the 24. I'm not keen on either of those. To me, it's insulting because it shows that hardworking people who do fight corruption in Indonesia are now being stigmatized or being labeled as unmanageable or troublesome. But do you know whether you're part of the 51 or the 24? It's not important to me. Even if I'm part of 24, I'll resign. I don't want to be a part of the 24. Why, why, why don't you care? Because for me, it's the same thing. Dan kalau masuk 24, apa yang akan terjadi? Dia akan dibina. Dan kalau nanti setelah saya dibina, akan dinyatakan ini akan bisa uh, dinyatakan bisa diterima apa tidak diterima. Jadi bukan berarti kalau masuk 24 itu masalahnya selesai, tapi justru hanya mendelay dan nanti akan ada putusan setelah itu. Dan saya yakin putusannya akan buruk juga. To me, they are the same thing. They're both insulting. Say someone is part of the 24, what happens next? He'll be trained and they will be declared whether they are acceptable or not. So it doesn't mean that the problem stops there. It is just a delay and the decision after that will be just as bad. In principle, we have never done anything problematic that merits a retraining. So to me, it's just a trick. Also, I've attended the military academy which has the best civic steps. I've done other tests that follow international standardization. That's why I believe it doesn't make sense to have this test conducted. Um, so you feel that it's, it's a trick to remove it? Yes. Right, right, right. Can you tell us about the, I think it's the TWK, the National Perspectives Test? What were some of the questions? Untuk terkait dengan tes yang dilakukan tes kawasan kebangsaan, 
itu saya meyakini itu hanya formalitas untuk upaya menyingkirkan orang-orang KPK yang bekerja baik. Yang pertama, saya mau membicarakan dari uh, aturannya dulu, dari sisi formalnya. Dari sisi formalnya tidak ada satupun aturan undang-undang yang mewajibkan untuk adanya dilakukan tes, kecuali hanya peraturan dari internal KPK yang itu pun dilakukan dengan cara menyelundupkan norma sehingga seolah-olah harus dilakukan tes tertentu. Saya mau tambahkan lagi, saya tambahkan lagi bahwa dari beberapa konfirmasi kepada ahli diantaranya adalah Profesor Eko Prasojo. Profesor Eko Prasojo itu adalah beliau yang membuat atau yang menyusun undang-undang ASN tentang pegawai negeri sipil diantaranya. Di sana disampaikan, beliau menyampaikan bahwa saat dibentuknya undang-undang itu, pembentuk undang-undang belum pernah memfikirkan adanya peralihan pegawai seperti KPK sekarang. Artinya, I think it's a formality done to call hardworking KPK staffs. First, let me tell you about the regulation side. On a legal basis, there is no law that compels the need for a test, except for the internal KPK regulation in which it was done discreetly. So it looks as if there needs to be a test. Let me add that it is confirmed by experts such as Professor Eko Prasojo. Eko Prasojo is the one designing the civil servant law. He said that when the law was drafted, there was no talk about transition of independent agencies such as KPK to become civil servants. Eko Prasojo is the one designing the civil servant law. He said that when the law was drafted, there was no talk about transition of independent agencies such as KPK to become civil servants. That means there is no such mechanism, so it doesn't make sense to conduct such a test. KPK staffs have undergone a lot of tests, more detailed than the other civil servants. Meanwhile, in KPK's internal regulation, there is already an assessment on civics. Let me add one more thing. In this test, we receive many questions that attack our privacy, that is insulting to women, that ask about religion and even about sex all of which is unusual in an assessment. Even the interviewers have never introduced themselves and it was conducted with a following proper protocol on how to conduct the tests. How did you answer these questions that you felt were what went against privacy and therefore, I suppose, individual liberty? Did you answer them or did you object? Saya yang saya ceritakan tadi itu bukan hanya pertanyaan kepada diri saya, tapi juga kepada kawan-kawan saya yang lain. Kalau kepada diri saya, lebih banyak terkait dengan apakah saya akan mentaati kalau diintervensi atau diperintahkan oleh atasan untuk sesuatu yang salah. Saya selalu menjawab dengan nilai-nilai atau kaidah-kaidah yang ada dalam nilai-nilai KPK, yaitu kejujuran, integritas, independen, dan tanggung jawab. Nah, selain itu, dalam kehidupan sehari-hari, tentunya saya mudah untuk bisa di-capture, dilihat. All those things I said are not just addressed to me, but to others as well. To me personally, they ask whether I will obey my superiors when intervene in certain matters, or if I will obey them if they're telling me to do the wrong things. I always answer that as long as it is following the principles that the KPK has, namely honesty, integrity, independence, and responsibility. If anyone wants to see what I do daily, it's really easy to capture. If somehow I join an organization that is banned by the government, or any institution that is not loyal to the country, it will be easy to find out because I socialize with the public a lot, and I'm well known to a lot of people. 
As for my performance at KPK, every year KPK conducted a test and I've always excelled at those. So I don't know what perception they have that they have to stigmatize me as if I'm troublesome based on the result of the test. I wanted to turn to the, your assessment of the effectiveness of the KPK and its inner workings um, even before this incident. Um, you know, on the one hand, it looks as if the KPK is actually functioning fairly well. And I'm thinking about the arrest of fishery, the former fisheries minister, Eddie um, Prabowo, and um, Samin, yeah, Samin Tan, the, the coal tycoon. And there's been other high profile arrests. Well, at the same time, this has been going on. Um, is it fair to say that the KPK is actually doing a fairly good job while it's under the auspices of the police? Saya pikir itu terbalik ya, karena justru yang terjadi nggak demikian. Pada saat awal-awal pimpinan yang sekarang dengan undang-undang yang direvisi, undang-undang yang baru, itu KPK awalnya lemah dan tidak bisa banyak bekerja. Kemudian kalau bicara terkait dengan peralihan media ASN itu dimulai sejak bulan Juli. Sejak ada PP nomor 41 dan kemudian proses pembahasan dilakukan sampai bulan November dan dalam pembahasan itu I think you have it backward. That's not what happened here. In the beginning of this KPK leadership, after the revision of the new KPK law, we are weakened, and it's really hard to do our job. The discourse on transition into civil servants began in July last year. That was in the government regulations number 41, and talks about it continue until November. But even there was no mention of such tests. But, because in December we managed to seize on high-profile figures, then, in January, the mention of such tests is inserted in a passing in KPK's norm. That binds us, and it becomes the weapon to dismiss us. So you have to understand it that way. From there, let me emphasize that I have analysis that there are those who think that in early 2020, the KPK has been weakened. I'm not sure if that means some are happy about it, but once KPK has proven that even in weakened condition we can manage such arrests, then it is a threat. There is no other option but to sack this KPK staff. That's the important point here. I'm, I'm not sure that I, I follow, because my, my question was to discern your how you feel the KPK is operating under the auspices of the police. Given the high-profile arrests, it looks as if you're still able to operate independently, more or less. Is that the case? Are you, is the KPK able to operate independently? Up until this Ketika point. Ketika bicara independen, tentunya dengan melihat undang-undangnya yang baru, tidak independen. Kenapa tidak independen? Karena di bawah eksekutif. Jadi tidak bisa dikatakan KPK independen lagi. Yang kedua, fungsi trigger mekanisme yang selama ini dijadikan kekuatan untuk bisa mendorong untuk yang lain karena independennya itu sudah tidak ada. Yang ketiga, posisi sebagai aparatur sipil negara atau ASN atau PNS itu membuat KPK atau pegawai KPK menjadi banyak kesulitan untuk bisa bertindak tanpa diintervensi. Jadi kalau bicara independen, problem semua. When it comes to independence, clearly it's no longer independent. Why? Because it's under the executive branch now. So we can say that KPK is independent. Secondly, KPK's function as trigger mechanism no longer works because it's no longer independent. 
Thirdly, the position of civil servants will bring obstacles to KPK since it will face many interventions. So KPK's independence is problematic now. But how come they still manage to get high-profile cases? Because in all those obstacles, with extra efforts, we manage to produce immense results. But it takes a lot of efforts, a lot more than usual. To measure what I just said is quite easy. After the arrest, how many other investigations branch out from that? That's the measure. Initial success in arrests of some of the actors is only the first act. But after that, it turns out that the other important actors cannot be uncovered. Had we not been weakened, we would have managed to expose other more important cases by now. Sebagai contoh, sebagai contoh, saya ingin contohkan. Dulu ketika KPK menangkap Nazarudin, dari perkara Nazarudin, KPK kemudian mengungkap banyak. Let me give you an example. When KPK arrested Nazarudin, from his testimony, KPK managed to uncover other cases, and it was massive. Take a look at Akil Mokhtar's case. After his arrest, we uncovered more than 12 other local officials who practiced bribery. That's because we were not weakened. But once we were weakened, the result became minimal. That shows the indication of us being weakened. You've said in media interviews that um, uh, Police General Furli Bahuri has acted excessively. Um, I believe the Indonesian expression he used was, um, wait for it, sewenang wenangan. Sewenang wenang, But the leadership of the KPK requires uh, a clear majority among the commissioners. So in order for the KPK to pursue something like the TWK test, there would have to be a majority opinion among the leadership. Is it fair to say that um, uh, General Furley is not acting on his own, but he has support within the KPK to pursue these sorts of tests? Uh, begini, saya pernah beberapa kali bahkan berbicara dengan beberapa pimpinan KPK lainnya selain Firly Bahuri. Pimpinan KPK yang lainnya banyak yang mengeluhkan tindakannya uh, yang bersangkutan atau Firly Bahuri ini yang uh, apa namanya lebih dominan dalam beberapa kesempatan dalam pengambilan keputusan ketika empat orang punya pendapat tertentu dan kemudian Firly Bahuri pendapat yang berbeda itu kemudian tidak berjalan artinya kalau bicara kolektif kolegial harusnya tidak demikian ketika pimpinan KPK sendiri yang mengeluh kepada saya pernah bercerita dan mengeluh kepada saya saya pikir itu the other heads of KPK complained to me that Firly Bahuri is acting as the dominant force. In some instances, when there was a decision between the four of them, in which Firly has a different opinion, that decision will not go too. If KPK is a collective collegiality, it shouldn't work that way. Just now, I received a message from one of the KPK leaders saying that they feel helpless, or Firly is too dominant. That means it's still continuing until now. You've also said in media interviews that you think that your electronic communications have been hacked. Can you give a bit more detail about that? Which, which, uh, what's, what's your evidence? Where, where, where did the hacking take place? And where do you think it came from? Ya, memang saya mengalami beberapa kali upaya untuk apa namanya untuk meretas dari handphone saya baik melalui email, eh, telegram dan eh, apa ada mungkin aplikasi lain. Saya nggak tahu kenapa eh, saya menduga eh, WhatsApp saya juga sudah dipantau atau dilihat eh, untuk kepentingan yang tidak sah. Eh, 
saya bisa mengetahui itu ketika tiba-tiba ada beberapa kali orang yang menge, apa, meminta notifikasi, meminta mengirimkan notifikasi nomor untuk password masuk akses telegram dan email. Dan itu apa namanya tidak pernah saya lakukan. Dan yang terakhir yang beberapa hari yang lalu yang saya umumkan karena kemudian telegram saya tidak bisa saya akses lagi. Baru kemudian dua hari yang lalu saya baru bisa mengakses setelah sekian lama. Saya nggak bisa mengakses dan terkunci, artinya setiap saya mau mengambil hal kembali itu tak bisa sama sekali. Dan saya yakin yang melakukan bukan penjahat biasa. There were several attempts at hacking my cell phone, whether via email or telegram. I'm suspicious that my WhatsApp is being under surveillance for illegal purposes. I knew that when I suddenly received access code for telegram and email, which I didn't ask for, I notified the public about it because my telegram account is not inaccessible. This is not your regular terminal because if it is, they will ask me about the code via phone or messages. There's no attempt at such a thing. They found out about it themselves, which tells that they are using sophisticated facilities that could be owned by a certain institution. So are you using any electronic communications now? I mean, do you use WhatsApp? Do you use, do you use Signal? Do you use any at all? Do you, do you trust your devices? Sekarang saya masih pakai. Uh, memang saya kemudian meyakini setiap uh, saya, untuk sebagai keamanan, karena saya sulit sekali untuk bisa melakukan pengamanan. I'm still using them, but for security purposes, as it is hard for me to get protection, I'm using two-way verification system, but all of them can be bypassed. Right now, the way I can do it is that I'm not going to talk about anything important through communication devices because I believe that this option has been Well, well, you know, Donald Trump doesn't use email, or, or, or you, you could be like a mob boss. You're not actually supposed to be on. <laughs> they don't use email, they don't use, email, they don't use text messages. So. <laughs> I want to talk about the, the future. What is your prognosis for the, for the KPK? How effective can it be, do you think? Begini, saya merasakan ini proses pelemahan KPK dilakukan dengan sistematis setidak-tidaknya sejak tahun 2015 atau 16 dan ini dilakukan hingga 2019 ada eh, apa namanya undang-undang KPK yang direvisi atau dilemahkan dan sekarang saya meyakini ini adalah fase akhir kalau ini juga berhasil orang-orang yang bekerja dengan integritas disingkirkan maka saya yakin ke depan orang akan takut untuk memperbuat kebenaran. Dan saya yakin ini adalah masa di mana KPK atau pemberantasan korupsi akan mati di Indonesia. Karena saya saya merasa enggak tidak masuk akal ketika ada orang yang I believe that this attempt at weakening the KPK is done systematically, at least since 2015 or 2016. This was still going on when in 2019 there was a new KPK law. If they succeed in doing so, all the hardworking people of integrity in the KPK will be killed, and I believe in the future people will be afraid to do the right thing. 
This is the phase where the KPK and anti-corruption dies Because no one will fight corruption in the midst of threats, in the middle of huge struggle while they don't, while they don't receive any protection whatsoever, but what they get instead is an attack from their own country. I attended a UNODC conference in Abu Dhabi. One of the resolutions declared there, and Indonesia as one of its members agreed to, is that member states have a responsibility to create an independent anti-corruption agency. More importantly, the second resolution is that member states must protect the anti-corruption apparatus so they can work independently. All I see now is that those resolutions or past resolutions, such as the one in Jakarta principle, is not being obeyed. Instead, what we have is the opposite. Um, I'm curious about your views about your boss's boss, uh, Police Chief Listio Sige Prabowo. He is... He does appear to be a bit more likely to be a reformer. Um, is there a chance of meaningful reform of the police under Police Chief Listio? Your, your assessment. I understand Pak Kapori itu uh, punya banyak sekali beban dan tentunya tidak mudah untuk bisa melakukan reformasi di Polri uh, tidak cukup hanya kemauan tidak cukup hanya uh, apa namanya pemahaman tapi butuh keberanian I understand that Listio Sigit has a lot of responsibility and of course it's not easy to reform the police a will is not enough it's not enough to have understanding but also courage and courage that is supported by the state if that is not fulfilled, I think it's really difficult for Listia to make an actual meaningful reform. But we do wish him to create the necessary steps for reform at Polri. Do you have any confidence that things will work out? I mean, uh, President Jokowi was asking Furley to reinstate you. Bagi saya, saya tidak mau menaruh harapan dengan siapapun. Saya, tapi di sisi lain saya harus menghormati dan mengapresiasi langkah-langkah atau ungkapan dari pemimpin negara yang menunjukkan itikat baik, menunjukkan kebaikan. Oleh karena itu bagi saya adalah saya ingin memastikan saya telah memperjuangkan uh, upaya pemberantasan korupsi ini untuk menjaga harapan tadi. I don't want to place hope on anyone, but on the other hand, I appreciate the statement from the head of state which shows good intentions. I want to make sure that I have fought for anti-corruption efforts as best as I can. I'm not too worried about the result. What we all do here is struggle in this fight. The result is not our decision to make. Whatever the results may be, we can say that we have done the best we can. And finally, your plans. If you're not able to work for the KPK, what will you do? Saya belum ada rencana, dan saya kira saya nggak terlalu tidak terlalu bermasalah untuk melakukan apapun. Karena saya juga sudah punya perencanaan untuk beberapa usaha-usaha dagang dan lain-lain. Tapi yang jelas, apabila pun saya tidak di KPK, saya tidak mau bekerja yang kemudian harus eh, apa namanya harus dalam kendali eh, bekerja tanpa. I have no plan on what to do next, but I'm not too worried about it. But even when I'm not at KPK, I don't want to work where I don't have integrity. The main point here is that I have to keep my integrity for the public goods. But whatever it is, I'm not too worried about what I'm going to do next. Politics? No. I don't have the talent to be a politician. Oh, okay. Thank you so much for talking with me, Pop. Yes. I wish you well.
And that's the pod. Thanks to Nabil Bazwidan for joining us. As well as producing the show, Stephen Handoko was our translator this week. Editing by Aditya Akbar. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. If you're listening to us through a podcast app, please subscribe and rate us. It helps. As always, you can reach us at hello at onthelevel.id. This podcast is a production of On The Level Media. I'm Jeff Hutton. Bye for now.